Hi, I'm Phoebe Lovett and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I have in-depth conversations with big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode of the series is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can access at public-library.online. Thank you for listening. Hi, welcome back to Deep Read. My guest today is the London-based journalist, Rachel Connolly. I first became aware of Rachel's work after reading her piece, This Brand is Late Capitalism for the Baffler, in which she unpacks a lifestyle writing trend for essays that offer ultimately pointless critiques of, yes, late capitalism. Since then, I've enjoyed articles she's written on subjects as diverse as the ugliness of NFTs, the banality of high street clothing, and the joys of a good gossip. There's also an interesting threadline to Rachel's work that explores the complicated dynamics of contemporary morality. We get into that during our conversation. On an internet awash with navel-gazing think pieces and self-proclaimed hot takes, I find Rachel's thinking to be incisive, original, and often very, very funny. I hope you enjoy this interview. Good morning, Rachel. Hi, Phoebe. Nice to speak to you. I'm excited to chat. So, obviously, over email, I said that I kind of wanted to talk to you about this thread of like morality that mm. I feel runs through the work of yours that I've read at least. Um, mm. And I guess I wanted to start out by sort of asking if you could tell me a little bit about sort of your, I guess your upbringing. I know you grew up in Belfast, right? Yes, I grew up in Belfast. Um, I just after the, tr- well, I was born during the Troubles actually. Um, I was born in 1993 and the Good Friday Agreement was 1998. Right. Um, so the the kind of violence of the Troubles had mostly ended um, as I was growing up, but there was still like rioting was common. And um, there's still like my primary school class was like pipe bombed <laughs> one night when there was wow. no one in the classroom because I was in a, I went to Catholic, I'm, I'm my family are Catholic, I went to Catholic primary school and schools in Northern Ireland are still very much segregated yeah. um so that that was the environment I grew up in which was like I think it's it's a brilliant place in a lot of ways like the people there have this like very very dry sense of humor yeah it's a place where the people are very tough um and English people sometimes misread that as like aggression right. <laughs> but it's literally it's literally tough those people are very tough um yeah this, this sort of dry sense of humor and there's this very interesting thing which I think informs a lot of my work which is it's very sectarian. It's very different to the rest of the world um, in that way because there is this division between Protestants and Catholics, which does not really exist in a meaningful way anywhere else now. Yeah. And I think it's a kind of helpful thing because there's this sort of like strange awareness that even though that's the way things are in the North, that's not the way they are anywhere else. Mm. So you kind of have this awareness of like how strange your system of beliefs and kind of like culture and society actually is Mm. and I think that's actually that's one of the things that's like massively important I work because I think if you grow up particularly in like a a sort of western country which is very dominant in the world stage like the US or England Mm -hmm. you never question social practices really like you don't think about any of that stuff because that's just the way the whole world is like particularly Mm. if you're if you're American the whole world is so propagandized by like the idea of the American dream and the idea of democracy and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, you, you almost you, like it's natural to never question that stuff. But if you come from a society where, which most of the world regards as like very, very strange, it makes you question like how real systems are, how 
how much anything is needs to be the way it is, how much anything, how natural processes are. And I mm. think that's just like one of the most useful things you can kind of possibly have. So yeah, I'm, I'm sort of like very grateful for um, actually being from there because I think it's, I think it's just a very, like a really fascinating place, but I think it does imbue you with this mindset of kind of like skepticism, wanting to know a bit more about why something is the way it is. You don't just like naturally accept authority mm, mm. and I think that's like that's a very useful thing in my writing that I've only realized obviously in hindsight how useful that actually is but I think yeah that informs a lot of the writing I do about like social mores and morality and all that kind of stuff yeah for sure because you regret you grew up sort of questioning the system that you were existing in do you mm. think that um the religious context of of your upbringing played into that at all yeah it's um I'm actually writing about this currently but the um so it's a funny one in that I, so my family are all Catholics um, and in Northern Ireland, I'd say religion is both more and less than other places. So it's more in that like people are more likely to identify as a religion, mm. but it's less in that if you identify as a religion, it doesn't necessarily mean you're super religious. Mm-hmm. So most people in Northern Ireland would say that they're Catholic or Protestant, but, and actually most the church attendance is like much higher but how religious they actually are is sort of like a much more interesting question. Mm. Um, I definitely grew up in like, and you know, like my great uncle's a priest and even he would say he's not religious. It's a very interesting thing. <laughs> that is but interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> very, it's very interesting. It's very oh. interesting. It's very like, because he would say that, and it's an interesting thing because you can never tell how earnest people are or whatever. You can't really tell what someone thinks truly inside, but yeah. he he is it's my great uncle's was my grandma's brother he he died a couple of years ago but he grew up in a time where they were like very very poor and the way to access education or travel or do anything was sort of to be a priest because the priest would pay for not university but they paid for you to stay on a school after like 13 um and so he that was he would say well he he always said when you know the whole time I knew him that he did the priest route to get an education to go somewhere else like he, he worked in Africa as a missionary but um but yeah he would he would literally say I'm not religious at all I did it for this reason but then he stayed a priest until he died so there's that mm. side of it too which is like it's a very interesting thing but yeah, I think the um so yeah I grew up in this environment where I you know I grew up Catholic I did all the sacraments and stuff and um there is a sort of he- there's a heavy st- sense of morality within catholicism yeah there's a lot of like you know the confession is a big thing um but forgiveness is also a big thing Mm. and the kind of like the way that there is the way that the like the idea of a sin sinner it's like this very sort of like everybody sins everybody's a sinner in some way and everybody also has the ability to ask for forgiveness everybody has the and you're you're supposed to forgive other people and you know, it kind of comes up from this place of like, you don't actually have any authority to sort of cast judgment over mm. other people because that authority lies somewhere else mm. um, with God. Um, and I think that is something that I, yeah, I, I sort of don't really know how religious I personally actually am. You know, like I wouldn't, I don't go to church, but if somebody dies or goes to hospital, I'll go and light a candle. Um, right. I like the rich. I like the ritual of it. I like, and everybody, my whole family, but everyone who says they're not religious would go and light a candle. Um, I, I like the, I like the ritual of it, and I like the fact of having a sense to mark things. Um, and I like, I like some of the the core teachings of like the, yeah, the idea of us not having authority to judge another person 
mm. because that authority is really lying somewhere else. Whatever you think that other thing is, I like I like that sense of it. Um, yeah. It's something I still, I still think about a lot, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think I really responded to in your writing is that, like I said, that thread line of sort of like moral ambiguity. And, mm. and, and you know, we're living... I also went to a Roman Catholic uh, primary school, although I wouldn't... I was definitely not uh, raised sort of culturally Catholic. Mm. Um, and I, I, I wonder... Yeah, it, it just made me... I, I, I'm like also very um, turned off, one of a more eloquent term, by sort of this super zealous moralism that happens online you know even though mm. I definitely sort of believe it align with a lot of the leftist opinions on sort of on on morals I the way that they're expressed the way that they're projected the way that people just judge each other constantly um online and, and are very vocal about that I find really like repugnant and <laughs> I like the way that you you write about that um you know you've you've written about that sort of like how it plays out in the workplace how it plays out in dating mm. culture obviously how it plays out even on tv with like you know your piece about succession and sort of how that's like rare in the sense it's a show that actually lacks a moral center and how like mm. re refreshing that is that we're just being shown these characters and we're not sort of expecting them to be better humans than they are and I think the um the thing that I think is so repulsive about the online culture of sort of like judgment and whatever is I think a natural response to that is to think like where do you get off? Like who yeah. are you to sit and judge me? And I think that's that's a very human, natural response. And I don't like that the way that the left uses it because I think it's very, very unappealing and very unattractive. And the left is already a hard sell. And yeah. I think, like, you know, left-wing policies for all, like, I know socialism is trending or whatever, but they're not, it's not a mainstream opinion. Like, we had a conservative government in the UK for a long time now, um, yeah. and it's a, it's a rarity to have to have a, not even a left-wing government, but to have a left-to-center government. And I think it's a, it's a movement that is, like we all have to admit, extremely unappealing and not mainstream. And right. I think this culture of setting it up as this sort of very judgmental space where everyone is very pious. I don't think it helps. I don't think it makes it more appealing. I don't think mm. it... And I think, yeah, it's there's a, just a very natural human psychology thing, which is that nobody likes being scolded and told what to do. Nobody likes feeling like they're not getting good faith engagement, which is a lot of what the online stuff is. It's just bad faith. Mm. And I think, I think that is the thing that I find so sort of like, just like demoralizing, repulsive, all of these words about this kind of judgmental left-wing judgmental culture online is that it's not a thing that humans respond to well it's a thing that yeah. most people feel very very unsettled by and I think um yeah I just I just find it such a I was talking to a friend about this last night and I was just saying the the natural if if your friend slips up and says something say your friend makes like an off-color joke or remark or uses terminology that's not like au fait with the way people speak now the normal response, if it's a friend and it's in good faith, is to say like, oh, that's not a phrase people use anymore. Or to say like, that joke just like doesn't sit well with me. And then the conversation moves on. And then they've you've told them in a kind of polite and affable way that yeah. that's not something that you're okay with. They get it. But that that way of communicating, which everybody knows how that's what you're supposed to do in real life to people you actually like and respect and whatever that just like all goes out the window online and it becomes this thing of like you have to stand in the mount and like deliver your 
sermon and it's just like oh, it's, mm. it's, it's genuinely find it repulsive what do you think it's arisen like you know i think we're used to that kind of moral self-righteousness coming from the right <laughs> but it, it is curious to sort of watch people of our generation you know young people who hopefully aren't completely angry and bitter with their entire lives already sort of like engage with that kind of you know rhetoric mm. I, I, what in your opinion is it arisen out of is it just like groups think or I think there is um I think there's a lot of like young people and I talk here I mean Gen Z rather than like I'm a kind of younger millennial but Gen Z is sort of like 25 and under they they have a lot of like I think a lot of fear about and lack of curiosity about saying or doing the wrong thing or not having not being seen to have progressive values mm. and I think that fear about how they are perceived I think mm. that fear is the thing that drives this like extremely harsh judgment of others yeah because I think there's this there's this like instinct to separate yourself from someone who might be on the bad grouping and I think that's a very sad thing because it's a lack of I think it shows a real lack of like openness with yourself to the idea that like you can you can have been wrong you can you can have had a a dodgy opinion about something that you didn't have enough information about and you can find out more information and change your opinion that happens all the mm, time people mm-hmm. are allowed to do that but there's a lack of understanding of how I think they all kind of expect and I think it's because they've been sort of like surveilled I guess for most of their lives in the sense of being mm. on social media I think they all kind of expect they don't give themselves any rope they expect to kind of like they or they feel that they are expected to have always had this perfect way of interacting with the world and with progressive causes and I think they find the idea of that not being the case for themselves very unsettling and they project that out onto other people I think it's a real it's a real way of separating yourself from whoever has has done the bad thing or said the bad thing Mm. and that's the thing that I find very like very sad about it because you you should let yourself be wrong and have bad bits and whatever Mm -hmm. that's part of being human yeah yeah it's like there's no room for sort of like ideological intellectual political evolution in the course of a lifetime anymore it's like you have to come out the womb fully woke and if you ever you know i mean obviously young people now aren't going to grow up or young people in certain contexts obviously i'm generalizing aren't going to grow up with some of the more like problematic ideals opinions you know societal structures that we grew up in the context of but equally it it just seems so damaging to not be able to change your mind and and also to not I wrote was reading something that you wrote um about like you know how we we essentially aren't able to do anything in private anymore because even if you're not actually being surveilled online people surveil each other now (laughs) totally 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 I think the um the the idea as well that you I think there's a thing that you kind of see online and like from like in leftist circles online where they're kind of like well like if you've not like it, they always say this whenever someone's old tweets from like 10 years ago or dug up and they've said something dodgy and everyone's kind of going off about it they're always like well like all, all my all my old tweets are perfect and you're like yeah okay fair enough that's that's great <laughs> but I think like even the lack of context as to why that works is often missing because I think like if you dig up a 16 year old or 15 year old tweets and they went to boarding school and they're in this environment where their teachers are very aware of them as this professional commodity mm. and aware of them as a brand. 
they learn a lot about how to present themselves, how to be professional in online spaces, even when online spaces were very new. They mm. kind of, they people in those environments always, always, always sort of think of themselves as a brand. They do etiquette lessons and they do lessons on how to interact in a networking environment and all that stuff. Mm. So that's one, what that's one person's 10 year old tweets is, is that they were in that environment at the time. If it was like a 15 year old at like a school in West Belfast, where it's sectarianism is completely rife, it's normal for everyone to say totally sectarian things. Homophobia was very normal in my school. Everybody mm. said homophobic things pretty much all the time. Transphobia, mm. possibly less vocalized, only because people didn't really know what transness was even. But like stuff like homophobia was normal. Uh, like I think from what I can remember, racism was kind of normal. Like making like there was there were words that were regularly used which nobody would use now. And I'm like, those are two, two 15-year-olds in very, very, very different environments. And we're acting as if they didn't, like, that, that neither was a context or, sorry, a product of their environment. You know, right. it's like, if you go back and look at both of those different 10-year-old tweets, yes, they're both 10-year-old tweets. The person, both people were the same age at the same time. Their environment was totally different. And I think that that's like that awareness of the fact that you are a product of your environment. Some people don't, don't. Some people back then would have perceived themselves as like this product, almost perceived themselves as a brand. Some people wouldn't have. I think that that bit of it is very, very missing. And that's why like when, when people are like, well, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. And I'm like, okay, but <laughs> there's a lot of reasons that are like not particularly dodgy that you, you do have stuff to hide. You know, it's like there's a lot of people who their old internet history is not something they would want dragged up. Because when we know the, the early internet, like nobody knew, even like the way that people spoke to each other, I'm like, so oh, we didn't actually have the internet in my house. So yeah. this doesn't apply to me. But it's funny because I, I think when I speak about this stuff, sometimes people think that I have this like all dodgy stuff. And I genuinely don't, but only because I literally did not have the... the <laughs> Anywhere to share your problematic <laughs> opinions. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like I wasn't on Facebook. I was I only got Facebook when I went to university. I didn't like, I didn't have MySpace or anything like that. So... And I def definitely didn't have Twitter, so this this thing is never going to happen to me specifically. Yeah, it's literally just because there I didn't have the, the I didn't have an outlet. Yeah, um, but I think yeah the the thing of the thing of like we have, we pretend as if everyone knew the way the internet would be today when we go back and look at these old tweets when nobody knew it would be like that or people in some environments did but most people didn't. Um, or people say like, oh, well, if you've got nothing to hide and it's like, but you should have things to hide. Like everybody should have stuff that they, that people are allowed to have secrets. They're allowed to have stuff that they do that with one group of people that they don't do with another group. That's totally natural and normal. And I think yeah, it's, it's this very unnatural thing of like, well, if you always, if you always behave exactly the way you should and you're like, most people don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> most, totally. like, most people wouldn't want, and not even because they have, they do anything on toward but like details of your sex life like most people wouldn't want that in the public domain in any no. shape or form and um that's you know stuff like that is totally normal and like you wouldn't want like if you you know if you like were i don't know like say you were like meeting guys on tinder and you were like sending naked photos and whatever that's not really like and with with their consent of course that's not really like a that's not a particularly like out there weird thing to do. Nobody would want that all leaked and put online. Mm. So it's like, mm. and I don't, you know, that's it's not an immoral thing to do. And there's there's that stuff too where it's like there's plenty of stuff that is not immoral. That's not an accountability process. 
that people would still like to keep private. And I think that side of it sort of just is not really thought about or considered. I was thinking about the piece you wrote about the banality of, of like most mainstream influences and which I really uh, agreed with that, you know, they're all just like identical versions of each other. And and I wonder, I mean, I don't think that people who become super generic mainstream influencers have like a strategy at play, but it does make you think about the fact that actually as much as we'd like there to be room for like, um, you know, weirdness and, and like, controversial people who are really like left field in whatever way radical whatever actually the internet is a climate that doesn't really enable people to live their lives in that way and be um secure yeah i i think that's totally i think I i totally agree with that i think there's a sense that if you i think there's a sense of like wanting to be safe or wanting to kind of like sand the edges off and I think that definitely, definitely fosters some of the banality. Yeah. And, um, and I, I also feel like maybe the type of person who wants to be a mainstream influencer or whatever, like, I think it maybe is quite a, quite a banal person because it's someone who doesn't see the idea that they maybe wouldn't see that, like, they their person personhood would be compromised by having, giving people that level of access to themselves. Like, mm. I think um, I find this really interesting. I'm... We did a talk about some of this influencer stuff, like um, a friend of mine, Shanti Joseph, who's a really good writer. She um, she kind of organized it, and um, it was really interesting because people were talking about Molly May, and it was like a group of like mostly women who came to this talk who were sort of like you know considered themselves interested in the influencer sphere. I don't not saying that they're all like huge stands of influencers or whatever, but they basically um, they all spoke about Molly May, and um, everyone was like oh, I like follow Molly May, but like I find her really boring. I actually kind of follow her because I find her boring. And it was like such an interesting, mm. no one was like, I follow her because I think she's glamorous and I love her sense of style. And I, literally everyone was like, I don't really like her clothes. Like I don't like her, her style is not for me. I think she's really boring, but there's something kind of comforting about watching her. And I did think it was just such an interesting way into how people relate to these type of figures where I was like, do they does anyone even like it or did or is it just mm. like do you know what I mean it's like it's just like Molly Bay is just there and yeah yeah, yeah. I know I think some people genuinely do find those people inspirational and aspirational but I even when you were saying that I was like oh there's like one or two influencers that I follow who I find simply for their banality like I I find it so soothing yeah. to like look at them posting acai bowls and like Pilates classes and you know yeah I'm like oh I mean I'm sure these people aren't actually super simple in fact one of them i i know through a friend of a friend and i know she's actually a hyper intelligent great businesswoman but she's obviously knows what people want to see and they just want to see like perfect you know smoothed out smoothed (laughs) out like soothing soothing content um i wanted to uh also just talk to you a little bit about sort of like the way that you've written about i think the first thing i read of yours was that um essay this thing is late capitalism yeah. yeah, which I really liked because I do that myself. I'm guilty of not you know that I've written like long investigative pieces on sort of like millennial marketed capitalist brands, but I've definitely been like, oh, okay, now I'm aware that everything is cap this is capitalism and I'm gonna like spell it out. <laughs> I've got it. Um but you know what I was thinking, but now I'm a little bit further along my sort of like consciousness and um, you know, I was thinking about like I think I'm going to quote you. This is going to annoy you maybe, but I think you wrote, <laughs> mo- most of them come to conclusions that feel curiously flat. And then you wrote about, um, you know, 
the, this thing is like capitalism essays um, end on a note of knowing resignation. Uh, they point out that brands are insidious, capitalism is oppressive, but in conclude that awareness of this may be waste, widespread, our power to act on it is minimal. And it made me think about, um, you know, that book Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. Um, yes, yeah. And I thought that, you know, obviously that's that's kind of, that's it in action, isn't it, really? That, like, you can sort of, um, you know, he, I think he writes about, like, how the media is a way for sort of, like, anti-capitalist ideas to be, um, you know, it's like a safe way of sort of, like, supporting or consuming those ideas without actually having to change anything, mm-hmm. um, which is why, like, the format of it. I mean, you know, obviously you and I are in a bit of a, like, niche media bubble of like (laughs) personal writing being like this huge you know for obvious reasons but Mm -hmm. I do think that those kind of essays really have such a big influence on um you know social and cultural opinions certainly in in like a millennial western millennial um setting and it is sort of weird to 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 sort of be conscious of this whole, this weird hypocrisy of everyone sort of blasting capitalism while simultaneously like completely embracing capitalism in every other facet of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, yeah, no, sorry. No, I was just, yeah. You go, you go, you go. You go, you go. I just spoke a lot. Um, I think the, there is that way of talking about doing the anti anti-capitalism i'm using the quotes but doing the anti-capitalism where it's like it's like we all and i think this is the thing i find distasteful about it is that it's like we all live at the mercy of the system or the system but it's someone who's like a staff writer at the new yorker with a good book deal and they do work that is i can't really imagine what how their work could really be better you know it's yeah. like i can't imagine how their working conditions could be better and they're like we all live at the mercy of the system and you're like you're actually at the very top of the system yeah yeah (laughs) and if you and you're at the very top of the system and the system has worked very well for you and you can say it's luck or whatever and i'm not if this isn't a privileged discourse thing because i find that very uninteresting but it's very strange to be sitting at the top of something and complaining about yourself as a sort of like victim of its structures when you're like whatever way it's worked out the structures Mm. put you above and it's I found that with um Emily Radichewski book which um it's that was that was very and to be fair I think she I think she's basically read a lot of this kind of like capitalism ah stuff and then being like that's what I'll do in my book of essays that's what people like to do and that's what people like to read but that was very like you know she's a model she's made a lot of money she's um she has I, I don't know what she, what else she really wants but it was very like capitalism's crushing me, man. Like every mm. <laughs> every essay was this kind of like, God, it's the capitalism. It's like, but it doesn't affect you, you in the way that you're saying. And mm. you're not talking about anybody else. You're talking mm. about yourself. And it's just a very strange, it's the thing of like, if, you, if you're going to write a piece about these structures and these systems, but still frame yourself as some kind, somehow like their ultimate victim. I just find it very, very strange because I'm like really an honest piece about these structures and these systems acknowledges yourself as, you know, as, as, as at the very top of the structure or in Emily Radoshevsky's case, like kind of, kind of create, creating the structure. Mm. And I don't mean in terms of, in terms of like body standards, but like, you know, she has that swimwear company. It's, I've tried to look up where they, their factories are or whatever. You can't find the information anywhere. And which always means, it's some like factory in Bangladesh where they pay the workers 10p yeah. or whatever. And it's like, you know, cause any, any company which is actually sustainable in that way and 
fair to workers makes that information very easy to find. And so it's like, yeah, it's like, why am I reading this thing about how capitalism is really bad from the lady who makes swimsuits mm, in mm. some in some sweatshop somewhere it just it's very very it's very weird because capitalism is bad for the person who works in the sweatshop it's right. not bad for the supermodel and yeah. i think that's the you know, capitalism is very good for a supermodel and there's no um there's i think there's a way of talk because ca- it's not that just if you take capitalism away you replace it with this kind of like utopian thing where everybody just gets what they want all the time every political system has trade-offs and in a system which was more, where wealth was more fairly distributed, someone like Emily Ratajkowski would definitely have less wealth yeah. and her quality of life would certainly be lower. And so it's like, if you don't like your life as it is now, it would be worse under another system. So do you understand that? Is that something you're aware of? It's very like, yes, yeah, it's, it's just like, what do you, what do you it's, like, it's like that thing that goes around on Twitter where people are always like, in the communist utopia, I'd be the pet photographer. And you're like, <laughs> in the communist utopia, we'd all be we'd all be making the gruel, actually. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. It's like it's like this lack of willingness to see that there are, and like most people, and I'm not, not even Emily Ratajkowski, but most people, like including me and you, like most people who live in a Western country and do a professional job are like the really top top one two percent of capitalism. Yeah, and so I'm like, capitalism wouldn't be a or a different political system wouldn't be a system where me or you would have a better time it's a system where someone who currently is working in a sweatshop is having a better time and that's something that i think a lot of western millennials find very hard to process the idea that like you are still even if you don't like it still currently at the top yeah like it might be sort of existentially deadening but you're not having to work 18 hours in a toxic like a literally a, a physically biologically toxic working environment exactly exactly yeah yeah um it's the most recent thing of yours i read was the pity me essay which i thought was really funny actually made me laugh out loud and as i said it really resonated with me and and not and you know let me like put my hands up by saying that i've done my fair share of whining about capitalism um and i'm kind of bored of it and bored of myself and i that's why that sort of like really um you know, nailed it for me in the sense that like, I wonder if we're going, you know, like there was obviously this era probably eight, 10 years ago where it was like productivity culture, hostile mentality was like at its apex. Everyone was super unashamedly into it, including myself. Although I always sort of like, you know, tried to balance it. I wasn't ever like, you know, work yourself to the bone, but I very much bought into that mentality. Then there was the backlash to that, the sort of anti-productivity thing, which obviously mm-hmm. has heightened a lot with the pandemic. And um, and and now I wonder if we're having like the, the backlash to the backlash where it's like, <laughs> okay, like you say, like, okay, guys, like let's get a little bit of a grip here because, um, you know, you're not like working yourself to the bone. Like you're sitting at a laptop in a nice living room with a cup of tea and you're probably going on a little walk, lunch, time walk and yeah zoom is like yeah. exhausting but it's not as bad as like the factory floor so yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah i think we yeah, have i think a lot of the also a lot of the sort of like anti-productivity stuff is like really weird because it's like i feel like it's sort of like always like it's not even it's always it's always basically like it's not even anti-productivity it's kind of like a lot of it is basically like I feel bad, but I have to do the productivity because like forced by the capitalist overlords. And you're like, okay, <laughs> that's, that's very like, um, it's not even sort of fully, you know, it's, it's very like, and I think there's this tone to a lot of it where it's very like, um, I, it's very like, look at me and look how much I'm doing. And like, aren't you very impressed? And like, there's a way that a lot of it has of talking where it's like, 
I, I struggled to see my success. And yes, it was true that I had like written well-respected pieces about the TikTok teens and I like had a reasonable Twitter following and I had also um, was hosting a podcast, but at the end, none of it felt like real success. Yeah. And you're like, okay, because those things are in the grand scheme of things, not yeah. like rip-roaring success. It's like, it's like, yeah, like maybe none of that felt like a huge success because that, that isn't actually this you know it's like you're, you're you've not written war and peace like yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. and there's that there's i think there's a kind of there's a humorless to it and a lot of like and i couldn't see myself with the success that others saw and you're like okay <laughs> yeah i mean but i think our culture has become quite humorless hasn't it and like mm-hmm. you know and I, I like that you know in your writing about sort of like how as like self-righteous people get about gossiping now and how like you know how it's considered to be like the absolute like moral degradation of our culture to gossip or chat you know have a little and I love a gossip a harmless gossip obviously I don't share information that's going to create issues in people's lives but a little harmless gossip is great and like I I find it really tiresome when people take a like super you know self-righteous moral high ground on it because like guys this is not a problem (laughs) Yeah, I think our, our culture has, has, there is a real humorless to it. There's a real, um, and there's a real kind of like, and I do, I do think some of this in writing is the result of people always expecting bad faith on, on, with engagement. And I think, yeah. I think like, I do think it's, there's a, people don't make fun of, this, of themselves in their writing. They don't leave in, because it's something I try and do in my writing is like, I kind of try and keep the humor dry and I don't spell the jokes out. And yeah. my hope is that that's funnier because I'm hope I'm, I'm hopeful that, if you read it and you don't feel like I'm saying like, here's the joke. I feel like that maybe feels a bit more personal because mm-hmm. you're kind of wondering like, Oh, would everybody find this funny or is it just me? And I yeah. hope that's, that's the thing I try to create. Like would the sense of like, is this, is this like, is this actually a joke? Is this like, <laughs> like yeah. I kind of, that's what I'm kind of going for. And I think, I think there's a, there's a, a thing of like people just generally being quite afraid to do stuff that isn't obvious what they're trying to do because they're, they're scared of bad, bad faith, they're scared of the backlash. And I really think that's sad because, like, I know that people on Twitter are really annoying, but I also think generally that type of bad faith or that presumption of bad faith belies this kind of, like, fundamental, like, distrust of other people. Yeah. And it belies this thing that, like, people won't... Nobody's, nobody is trying to kind of, like, engage with each other in, in a human way. Everyone's just trying to find the piece of your article that they can cancel you for. And I think that's just very sad because my experience is actually, like, that's not how it works. Like, mm. you know, like, pe- people on Twitter are really annoying. But, like, and apart from this, like, warden stalker that I picked up, like, I do, I, I genuinely think you can, you can, you can say pretty out there stuff. And if you, if you put it in a way that makes the reader get on side, like, if it's funny and it's, like, you know, if you've created a sense of like intimacy with the reader, I think that the response is actually generally pretty good. And um, even if people don't agree with what everything you say, they mm. still have a sense of feeling enough good faith for you to kind of like let it go. Um, and I think that's, I think that is very, I think that's very sad because I think the humorlessness is sort of like people being almost scared to do. Cause I think there's a type of a, a way that humor works in a lot of writing where it's like just this very obvious, like slapsticky, like, Kel surprise, like very just like hammy over the top because mm. as long as it's over the top everybody knows it's supposed to be a joke and so then no one can be like this was a, this was not a joke you know what I mean like no one can be like is this writer joking or not and mm. I'm like that's very 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 sad that 
that you know hamminess isn't funny it's very sad that like a lot of writing which is meant to be funny you would never read it and laugh like yeah. <laughs> you know you're supposed you can literally read one of these pieces and know where you're supposed to laugh but i doubt a single person ever does i mean i, I can't I, very- I can't even think of the last thing i read that was funny i mean your, your present company excluded <laughs> which your work does make me laugh out loud but like there's very maybe i just need to look for different writers but there's very little that i read no there's very there's very little there's very little that i find yeah. funny like, it, um do you read rosa lister's writing no her she hers is very funny she's very like and it's the same kind of like dry deadpan that like you don't exactly know if other people would find it funny and that kind of makes it funnier. Mm. But yeah, there's very few people I can think of. And I can I can think of a lot of people who like do like a humor piece and it's like the least, <laughs> the yeah. least funny thing on earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get, well, maybe sort of seeking comedy in, in writing is, is the wrong, going down the wrong avenue at this point. I'm not sure, but um, <laughs> I, you know, I think again, I, I've, I've been humorless myself at certain points in my life and I'm just really trying to like claw back some sense. It's difficult. We're living in a, yeah, we're living, we're living in a pretty heavy, it's a pretty heavy global climate. And I, you know, I'm not saying like, why isn't everyone feeling super spontaneous and flippant and fun, but equally you can be in extremely dark circumstances and still find a lot of humor it's in funny. it. And, yeah. I think as well, the, um, the, but that, that, that's actually a real Belfast or like Northern Ireland generally that I'm, kind of grateful for because there's a sense of humor there that is there's a real dark sense of black humor there where everything is like this weird offbeat joke and you don't really know and I think that that's a it's a very like I find it I think it's very smart and it's very like it's very kind of witty and whatever and it's the kind of like all the kind of catchphrases and stuff from that area from that area are sort of like weird and funny and like there's a way that people have speaking there that I think is just like absolutely hilarious and it is from it's from the troubles it's from having to deal with all of this like very weird heavy stuff and that's the way of processing it and um and yeah the sense of humor there is just like actually so funny but it's a and that's a a very valid way of dealing with dealing with real like dark stuff Mm. is kind of having this sort of like almost making a joke and making it surreal i think that's that's a a real thing that i I learned from there. This is not about this is a slight change topic because it's not really about humor. But I remember I'm just thinking of this idea of us living in very like prosaic times where everything mm. has to be spelled out. And did you see like Emma Dubiri's book and um, what white people need to do next? Did no, I didn't did see it? that. No, it was um, it was really oh, good. I've seen, was, I've, like, seen, I've seen the book, but I haven't read it. You haven't read it yet. So it's um, it was very good. Um, but it, I, it's basically like it was. It was actually, it was very, it was challenging to a lot of the sort of race discourse that goes on at the minute, um, because it was very much about sort of like putting it into a more intersectional framework, looking at the experiences of like within the black community, the difference between middle class, working class people and whatever. Right. Um, it was it was really interesting book, I would recommend it. And it, she did deconstruct a lot of the, the way that identity politics has just gone a bit awry online. Um, but I thought it was really interesting because her... It was at the time where all of those like anti-racism textbooks were coming out and um, her the cover of her book is like these flyers and the title of it looks like an anti-racism textbook. Right. And I remember pe- people, I saw a lot of people on social media kind of making fun of it and being like, oh God, another one of these books, whatever. And then when it came out, this was when it was announced and then when it came out, it was totally different to that. And it was actually pushing back a lot of that stuff. Mm. I remember reading an interview with her where she was like, we live in very prosaic times where everything is spelled out in this way. And she was like, I deliberately was trying to be subversive. And I thought I can make it clear that this is a kind of like rethinking identity politics book. And then one type of person will read it, or we can almost like put it in onto the radar and it can be framed mm. as this like anti-racism liberal, like 
like why Alice like a type text type book and more people will read it then and more people who would, wouldn't actually read that type of thing will read it and I just remember thinking that was really clever because yeah I was like she's totally right yeah I think she was like you live in very prosaic times and I quite like to do something like that that's subversive I just yeah, remember you have to, you have to market like, things accordingly yeah 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 and I yeah. remember thinking that was really smart and that was really like um that was really funny and I thought that was like just a very clever way of because I was like with this this is the time these are the times we live in and you can you can think of little small things like that to do to just like through turn things on their head a bit um but yeah I, I remember just reading that and thinking it just struck me as similar to the humor thing where it's like instead of spelling it all out can we do it in like a slightly more sly way can it be yeah. Mm-hmm. And then just to, to finish, because it's been so interesting mm-hmm. talking about, I'm aware that we're coming to the end of our slot. I'm, I, when I asked mm-hmm. you to sort of like, you know, that maybe we'd talk a little bit about what you're reading, you mentioned a book called Pure Life. Pure Life. <laughs> which, which I haven't, I personally haven't read, but I Googled it's, it and it's described as a sports saga, sprawling thriller, thriller and existential reckoning with the rot at the core of the West, <laughs> which I, probably speaks to a lot of like what we've discussed today. So can you just tell me why you so enthusiastically recommended it? Yeah, I, I, I love it. It's basically, I think it's out in May and... Um, it's it's just it's an author who I really like. It's this guy called Eugene Martin, and um, he's written a couple of he's written like three or four novels before I think, um, and they've all just been amazing. And um, he he's just someone who's I think is really cool because he makes absolutely amazing work, and he does it just to make really good work. And like he's still I think he's in his sixties now, but he still has a day job, and he's still like. And I don't think the previous books have sold particularly well, but they are absolutely extraordinary. And um, it's just someone who I think in this day and age, I think he has a lot of integrity because he makes the work the way he wants to make it. And I think that's a very mm. valuable thing that we've kind of like, it's gone to the wayside a bit. But yeah, I think I feel very strongly about um, trying to like promote this book as much as I can because it's only out. It's, well, I mean, you can order it from Amazon, but it's only got a Canadian publisher as it is. Um, and I just feel like so many more people should read his books and do. So I've just been trying to like recommend it to everyone. But basically, it's um, the premise of it is this guy who is not naturally a sporty guy. He's not like built as an American football player, but he kind of and he's from this very like working class mining town type family. And he kind of claws his way to fame and fortune by learning how to play the game really well, like learning how to like he, he sort of studies American football as if it's like a like an academic subject almost. And he calls his way to fame and fortune and then cut to the future. He has lost all his money in the financial crash. He'd invested in all of his property and whatever, and it's all gone. And um, he has sort of his relationship with his family is very fractured and he has memory loss from years of sustained head injuries. Mm. And um, he basically spends, he spends the most majority of the book trying out experimental cures to have his memory restored Mm-hmm. And um, it's just a very interesting premise because it's basically he spent the first couple, the first sort of like quarter of the book working up to being this American footballer, and then after it's over, it was the best thing that ever happened to him. And when his memory starts to go, all he wants is to get the memory back so he can have the memory of that time. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it's a very human thing that's um, like sport is a good sort of vessel for it, but it's a wider human thing about how we kind of all work towards goals and it's more the working towards something and the thing when it happens is always so fleeting and then you spend your whole time thinking about this very fleeting moment Mm. it's this very interesting sense of like the the lengths it's just a very human thing of like the lengths you kind of go to to get the thing you want 
on the fact that it never lasts for long enough on the fact that yeah. you spend your whole time then feeling nostalgic about the thing and um and basically yeah he so he goes to this experiment clinic in costa rica and um, ends up kidnapped and um in the jungle and then that's an interesting commentary on on kind of capitalism because i think there's a fantasy a lot of people have about you kind of see this in a lot of internet discourse where i think there's a fantasy a lot of people have where they're like if we could just like turn capitalism off and go back to the start mm. and the jungle thing is a metaphor for going back to the start because it's going back to this undeveloped mm. sort of sort of area of life and um and the kidnapping just shows like the kind of warping of that sort of fantasy and um it's just very i just think i think it's an absolutely fascinating book and it's it's like it's one of these books that i'm like i wish publishing was less clapped because it's a book that way more people should read <laughs> yeah and it's like well, you're, you're yeah, doing you're, you're doing your bit you're doing your one woman <laughs> yeah, yeah. pr campaign <laughs> I spoke yeah. to the um, the editor of it is like is a guy who really really rich and then he he was like because I keep sending people to him for galleys and stuff because I'm just like I just think everyone should read them I'm just like I want more people to read it but um, he was like your enthusiasm he was like your enthusiasm for this one is like very overwhelming <laughs> and I was like <laughs> he was he was basically like this is great but like also <laughs> calm down take it down a notch <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm always down for an enthusiastic book recommendation in our, in our yeah, present please, times. Please order it. <laughs> yeah, no, I will. I definitely will. Um, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today, Rachel. It's been it was, so nice to chat. It's been yeah, lovely. it's been a pleasure. Um, thank you again and um, lots of food for thought in there. So um, I'll be mulling yeah, over. Lovely to chat. Thank you so much. Bye.